go live here. Does this look okay? Hopefully. This does not look right. Okay. It's my chair. <laughs> this is the creaky chair. I always get the creaky chair for some odd reason. So now that you mentioned it, now everybody will notice it more. But we do need a new dining room set here. That is clear. So um, anyways, welcome to Mercy Seat. Um, we have good group here this way and this way at our home. And of course, we're meeting at other homes and then people are in their own homes. So God bless all of you. Uh, there was a massive rally and protest against this whole shutdown and stay at home order in Madison on Friday, two days ago. Well over 5,000 people showed up. Um, we put out boatloads of Defy Tyrants, uh, stickers, literature, and sermons. We were very well received. We had signs that just said defytyrants.com. And then we had a sign that said, um, also we had a number of those. And then we had a sign that said, we have forgotten God. And we had some of our stickers on it. Um, so I've been warning everybody about how the Republicans are gonna sell us out on all this stuff. They want half measures. They wanna use this to create laws and to create an opportunity to and, you know, win brownie points politically against Evers and against this other stuff. Um, and I said, if the Republican, if it was a Republican governor, this place would still be shut down. I've been telling people that. And the day we did the protest to just end this now, stop this insanity, Scott Walker was interviewed by Fox News. And Scott Walker said that all of us need to learn how to live by the guidelines before the stay-at-home order can be lifted. And he said, we need at least three more weeks here. That's what he said. We need a few more weeks. That's three, at least, <laughs> to um, determine whether we can lift the order or not. So you have to understand what's going on here is that the Republicans, do you, you do know this, the Republicans could end this right now. According to our state constitution, they have the authority, both if the Senate and the assembly agree in resolution, they can end this stay at home order immediately. Instead, what they do, they ran to the courts. They ran to the courts because they wanna cover their own butts because they don't wanna do their duty because they found that the courts are useful and politically expedient for them. So instead of doing their duty and just stopping it immediately, what they've decided to do is take it to the courts rather than do their duty. That should bother you. And then I found out there's already a bill in the works to make sure that there's all kinds of new laws imposed upon businesses regarding COVID-19, which further invades the state into business and even into familial affairs also. That is the Republicans are for this bill and putting this, it's the usual thing you get from the conservatives, from the Republicans, half measures. Never just stop the evil. Okay, we've all seen this was wrong to do to begin with. The numbers never materialized that they said would be there, not even close. They've added to the numbers through lies. Um, people who are in the healthcare field are being laid off when we were told, what were we told? We were told that, oh, we have to do this because else, or else the healthcare system will be overwhelmed. It was never even close to overwhelmed. All these little dopey tents they put up outside hospitals everywhere across the state. Nobody's seen anybody in those buildings. Understand that. So that's important to understand. 
what's going on here. They're continuing with their plan, even though anyone with a brain can see that it's been garbage since the beginning. And surely now anyone could see it's garbage. But no, they still are pumping out their propaganda. And most of the dopes in America believe the propaganda. And it's sad to watch. I saw this little meme this week. And um, it showed the Statue of Liberty hunched down. She's sitting. And there's this little citizen standing there looking up at her. And she's like weeping. And the little citizen says, we just got scared. <laughs> and I was just like, that, when you think of all what men in America have done in years past, what they've endured in years past, and then look at how this generation has responded to this nothing. Meanwhile, the healthcare workers are acting like they're now the new Hollywood people. You know, I've always despised Hollywood simply because they gathered for a lot of reasons. But one of the reasons is they gather together and they have the Oscar awards where they all pat each other on the back. How arrogant, how despicable. That's what the healthcare workers are doing now. They're gathering together. You know, the firemen are congratulating the nurses. The nurses are congratulating the doctors. Everyone's patting each other. This was nothing. You're getting laid off because there's nothing to do. You're still sipping your lattes, right? Could you imagine this generation during the Black Plague when one third of Europe's population died? Could you imagine the softest people the planet has ever seen, like little sniveling slaves willing to take whatever the state dishes out to them just to be safe? Little, anyway, I'm not here to preach about that today, so I'm not going to. I'm going to continue in the book of Acts and give you some good biblical material so we can continue to live as Christian people and not live in fear, hysteria, begging for tyranny to keep us safe. Christianity brings liberty to the individual. It brings true liberty and freedom to nations. It's a goodness to nations. So anyway, there's a million more things I could say about all that COVID-19 stuff. But I want to um, cover chapter 21 here of the book of Acts. And once again, like last week, the first half of the chapter is a lot of traveling by Paul. So again, I wish we were back at the Zufari so I could use the PowerPoint and show you all his movements, but I can't. So I'm just going to buzz through his movements more or less, make some comments, and um, focus in on a few key matters more towards the second half of the sermon, as I did with chapter 20 last week. So the title of my sermon today is Acts 21, A Gift, Hegemony, and a Beating. A Gift, Hegemony, and a Beating. Let's bow our heads and we'll pray. Lord, we rejoice in you and thank you for this time that we have here today. We just ask that your blessing would be upon us, that you would use it for good, in our lives. Help me to set forth that which you've given me to declare. May we all be forever different because of our time in your word. May it cause our love for you to be deeper and our desire to serve you greater. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so if the kids are noisy or talking or whispering, this picks up. There was a lot of it last week. I can't encourage you again strongly enough um, to go to the bedroom back over there with your kids Otherwise, people cannot get a true reading on what is being said, um, especially if they're not used to kids being around them. 
because they just notice every little thing. Um, me, I can like blast it out of my head, but there was a lot of talk. So especially kids that are close to the mic, the closer you are, the quieter you need to be. But it picks up everything. So anyways, let's go through here. We're in chapter 21, verse 1. It says, now it came to pass that when we had departed from them and set sail. Departed from who? They had just departed from meeting with the Ephesian elders, remember? So it came to pass. And by, by the way, when it says departed here, that when we had departed, here is how you could say it in our language um, today. You would say it this way. After we had torn ourselves away. After we had torn ourselves away. That is a great way of putting it because there's this great bond between Christian people. And there's a great bond, especially between Christian people who minister together. And so here they were close to these Ephesian elders and they had to tear themselves away. It was very difficult to leave, especially for Paul and the Ephesians elders, because they knew they weren't going to see each other again. So it goes on here and it says, Now it came to pass that when we had departed from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to Kaz. Kaz was a free state in Asia Minor at this time, not ruled by the Romans. Goes on and says, The following day they went to Rhodes. Rhodes was once a very powerful state that had long since lost its power. It's kind of like a little like, had become like a little Lake Geneva near here where you can go and relax and it's a beautiful view have a latte, you know, all that kind of stuff. That's kind of what Rhodes was like in Paul's day. And then from there, they went to Patera. Patera was a city that had a fine harbor and was a favorite port of call at this time when Paul was there for very large ships. So it goes on in verse 2, and it says, And finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And Phoenicia, Syria, kind of used interchangeably. That's where they want to get to. It's north. Of Jerusalem. And uh, what do I have written down here? Well, not much. So anyways, verse three says, when we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left. It's an island, sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. Tyre was in a city in Syria slash Phoenicia. For there, the ship was to unload her cargo. John Chrysostom, who lived during the fourth century, said that that was a five-day sail, five days from where Paul left to arriving in Tyre. It was five days. Verse 4 goes on and says, And finding disciples there in Tyre, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. Now, it's important to understand the Spirit was not telling Paul not to go. The disciples are simply saying, we don't want you to go because the Spirit's revealed to them what's going to happen because all along the way, Paul's learning that persecution and the wrath of the Jews await him at Jerusalem. We saw this in Acts 19, 21. Acts 19, verse 21. He said, when these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit, this is Luke writing, when these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Cai, to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And in our last chapter, verses 22 through 24, Paul says this, And see now I go bound in the Spirit 
to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy in the ministry which I received from the, whole, from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So they weren't telling him, the Spirit wasn't telling him not to go. It's just that the Spirit had revealed to the Christians at Tyre what was going to happen to Paul, and they didn't want him to go because of that. But Paul's making clear, no, God wants me to go. He's put it within my spirit to go. The Holy Spirit has made it clear I'm to go. And so he continues to go. It says in um, verse, uh, verse 5, When we had come to the end of those days, those seven days, we departed and went on our way. And they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city. All the Christians there, all the believers entire, followed Paul and the others with him out to the shore. And it says they knelt down on the shore and prayed. Very reminiscent of what happened with the Ephesian elders in our last chapter, right? Kneel down, pray, time of great uh, weeping and sorrow. And it says, when we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship and they returned home. Verse 7 says, And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemy, greeted the brethren, and stayed with them one day. Get this. There were Christians in Ptolemy. How many of you remember the significance of Ptolemy to the story of Governor Publius Petronius and the Emperor Caligula? Remember when Caligula wanted to put the statue in the temple in Jerusalem? He sent the order, the law of the emperor, to Governor Petronius, who was staying in Ptolemy. He was wintering there in Ptolemy at that time. And there were Christians there in Ptolemy. And, of course, it was a great story of interposition. Governor Petronius ended up defying the law of the emperor. He was supposed to kill himself for it, but fortunately the ship carrying word for him to kill himself from the emperor because of his defiance to following the law of putting the statue in the temple in Jerusalem, that ship arrived after the ship carrying word that Caligula had been assassinated. So great story of interposition. The statue never was put up. God in his providence had Caligula. Caligula was assassinated in the providence of God. Um, so we'll go on here in verse 8, and it says in verse 8, On the next day, we who were Paul's companions, that would include Luke, departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven. One of the seven what? Original deacons. Remember that earlier in the book here, the book of Acts? And stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. Nothing more is said about that, except that he did have these daughters who prophesied. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. So here we have in verses 8 through 10, Paul meeting with Philip. Remember, Philip had left Jerusalem, ended up in Caesarea, and was winning Gentiles, mostly at that time Samaritans, to Christ. He ended up staying in Caesarea. He had been there for 20 years at this point. So when I read this, I'm thinking to myself, this was just a great time of respite for Paul. All that he had endured, all of his travels, everything, the persecution, 
the troubles within the churches, the epistles he's been writing. And here he gets to hang out with Philip, a time of respite, a time of refreshing. That's how I see this being for Paul. A time for them to sit together in fellowship, reminisce, and strategize, along with the other disciples and Christians that are there. The churchman and historian Eusebius, who wrote an early church history in the early 300s. How many of you have ever read Eusebius's early church history? That is a must read for all Christians. So um, you can still read it today, and I encourage you to do so, because you'll learn so much historically from that writing. But Eusebius said that Philip and his daughters had to move to Aeropolis after this meeting with Paul. We don't know whether it was a year later or three years later. But after this meeting with Paul, him and his daughters had to move to Aeropolis due to the antagonism between the Jews and the Romans increasing in the region. And of course, that was headed towards 70 AD. There was this rise in nationalism amongst the Israelites. And there was tension between the Romans and Jews. The zealot movement had been growing. Um, so they ended up moving to Aeropolis. And that's the last we know of them historically. So there they are, many days. And verses 10 and 11 reads, And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So notice the Spirit didn't declare through Agabus to Paul not to go to Jerusalem. That is not the message of the Spirit. The message of the Spirit has been, you're going to Jerusalem, and this is the message, persecution awaits you. And here we see it again with this prophet Agabus, letting him know that persecution awaits him. The Lord is preparing Paul's heart and the hearts of believers everywhere for what's coming. It says in verse 12, Now when we heard these things, both we and those from the place pleaded, from that place, pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul knew that the Lord wanted to use him to bring the gospel to the Gentiles and to the Jews. He's, that's his modus operandi. Go to the temple if there is one, preach there, wait till he's thrown out. Bring it to the Gentiles nearby, out on the streets. So he has this great mission for him to the Gentiles, the Lord does, but he also has this great mission for him to the magistrates, to the Roman magistrates. Remember his first convert was who? A Roman magistrate, Paul's first convert on his first missionary journey. And the last years of his life, he was surrounded by Roman magistrates, instructing them in the ways and thinking of Christ. So Paul knows this is what God has for me. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'll be suffer persecution, and I'll eventually make it to Rome. He's already made that clear. Remember back in chapter 19 that he knows what the Lord has for him. So it says in verse 15, or verse 14, So when we would not be persuaded, when he would not be persuaded, we cease saying, quote, the will of the Lord be done. So they couldn't convince Paul not to go to Jerusalem, so they said, may the will of the Lord be done. And that's a great saying said by Christians down through the centuries. 
And when we don't know the will of the Lord, it's a good thing for us to say, right? May the will of the Lord be done. We can determine what we want to do, purpose in our hearts what we want to do. But we should always remember, but the will of the Lord be done. Amen. Our life is in his hands. He is the sovereign here on planet Earth. It says in verse 15 and 16, And after those days we packed and went up to Jerusalem. Also some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. So they're um, lodging with this nason brother. He's an early disciple. What's meant by him being an early disciple, he was probably there at the day of Pentecost when the disciples preached. He was probably a God-fearer from Cyprus who came to Pentecost and heard the preaching of the of Peter and the other disciples and was converted to Christianity. That's what's meant by an early disciple, okay, here in verse 16. Now it goes on in verse 17. It says, and when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James. Remember, this is the Jewish branch of the church. And there were Jews in most of the churches throughout the Gentile lands too, but this was the hub of Jewish messianic Christianity, there in Jerusalem. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. When he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So here's the first part of my sermon that I want to talk about. Remember the title of my sermon? A gift, hegemony, and a beating. <laughs> okay, so here's the part about the gift. Paul doesn't mention, pardon me, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, doesn't mention here at all about Paul bringing this gift to the Jerusalem church. But we know from the epistles, some of the other epistles and the timeline, that Paul was bringing this big financial gift to the Jerusalem church that was in need at that time. This was important to Paul, this gift that he was bringing, because if received by the Jerusalem church, it would be a symbol of unity between the Gentile and Jewish branches of the church. And two of the places you can look up talking about this, that we know we brought this gift, is 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 4. So mark that down. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 4. And also Romans 15, verses 25 through 27. Romans chapter 15, verses 25 through 27. So let's look at those verses real quickly. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 through 4. It says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also, he's writing to the Corinthians here, on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift, Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. And we know Paul did go. And these guys who were men of stature within these various denominations were part of those of the we that were traveling with Paul to Jerusalem at this time, bringing this gift to the Jerusalem church. This was a gift 
from the Gentile church to the Jewish church, which of course we're all one, as Paul wrote in the book of Ephesians. One new man, a true Jew is one who believes in Christ. A Christian is anyone, whether Jew or Gentile, who believes in Christ. Amen? So anyways, in chapter 15 of Romans, verses 25 through 27, Paul says, But now I am going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints, for it pleased those from Macedonia and Kai to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. It pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. So Paul makes it clear he is going to Jerusalem. Luke does not mention this here, but this is very important. And this is the gift part of the sermon, gift, hegemony, and a beating. This gift was the main purpose for Paul coming to Jerusalem, to affirm the mission to the Gentiles and build unity between the two branches, Gentile and Jewish. Paul knew there was trouble. And now we will see what the trouble is as we look at the next part of my sermon regarding hegemony. Hegemony, which of course is the preponderant influence or authority, the dominance over others. The Jews wanted to exert their dominance and authority over the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers. And even some of the Jewish believers wanted to exert their authority over the Gentile believers and bully the other Jewish believers. Hegemony. Human history is full of hegemony. It goes on all the time. It has gone on all the time. It is going on all the time. It's part of human nature. And here we see hegemony. The Jews want to dominate over the Jewish and Gentile believers. There's even some Jewish believers who want to dominate over other Jewish believers and especially over the Gentile believers. Hegemony. And look what happens here. Verses 20 through 22, it says, and when they heard it, talking about all the good things that had happened amongst the Gentiles through Paul's ministry, and when they heard it, they glorified the Lord and they said to him, you see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. So there is trouble afoot. And it's immediately brought up right after Paul gives this glowing report of what all the Lord's doing amongst the Gentiles. They tell him about the trouble. So we know biblically many or at least some of the Jewish believers are feeling the pressure from the Jews. The Jews are telling stories about Paul, making up lies and mischief. They are taking things Paul is saying, biblically true things, and twisting them. This is malice. Men are good at malice and maliciousness. Paul wasn't saying to forsake Moses, as they were saying. He was just giving the proper understanding of Moses. And you remember we talked about this in prior sermons out of Acts. And Paul wasn't saying Jewish children shouldn't be circumcised. He was simply saying circumcision does not save you, and therefore the Gentiles do not need to be circumcised. But they were twisting his words. 
Every minister has had to learn to live with people twisting his words. Some twist your words just because they're stupid and misheard you. Some aren't stupid, but they still misheard you. And then others twist your words just because they're malicious. And they want to misrepresent you and tell lies about you. So the brethren come up with a plan. And the plan is revealed in verses 23 through 25. Let's read there. And they say to Paul, therefore, do what we tell you. There's this trouble afoot. Do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing except that they should keep themselves from the things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality, which we talked about all that when that was brought up back in Acts 15, as you may recall. So they come up with this plan, right? Paul's supposed to get, take this Nazarite vow, shave his head. These other four guys have already done it. He's going to pay their vows. They're probably poor people. This is all going to look good to the Jews. Paul's doing all this. So their thinking is this is going to look good to the Jews and dispel these rumors and lies and malicious words that are being spread about him. So this wasn't too bad of a plan. But in the end, you'll notice it didn't spare Paul the wrath and persecution of the Jews. <laughs> it just didn't. And that's usually the case. When we were out at this protest and rally on Friday, there were some people out there with rifles and guns and all that kind of stuff. I walked up to every single one of them and said, God bless you. I always thank men who open carry for what they're doing because I know they get flack from other people. And so that is a goodness when they're doing that. And so I, I posted a picture with our sign, defytyrants.com, with all these armed people around me. <laughs> yeah. Put up on Facebook, over a 1,000 reactions, 700 and some comments. And some people are all crying about, this makes us look bad. The press is going to make us look bad. The press is already going to make you look bad. Once you decide that what's important to you is how you're going to be portrayed in the press, you've lost the fight already. It doesn't matter what you do. They're liars. They misrepresent the truth. They're purveyors of evil and wickedness. And they always give those people a pass and make their evil and wickedness look good. And people are for goodness and righteousness and freedom and truth. They always make look bad. That's how the press works. You don't sit there and try to... People just need to grow up and realize those are the bad people. The press, right? They're messed up. I don't believe what they're saying. I'll investigate myself to see there's, there's even a scintilla of truth to what they're saying. Understand what I'm saying, brothers and sisters? Most of the media in America are liars, and they are the enemy of what is good and right, and the purveyors of wrong and evil. Paul was already hated by the Jews and painted maliciously by them. When you're in that situation, here's what you do. You just do right. You just live your life right in fear of the Lord, in the ways that he's called, ways he's called us to live, and you leave the results to him. Rarely does playing their game ever work. Understand? Rarely does that ever work. Understand there is a lot of politics at play here at this time regarding Paul. 
The nation of Israel is getting ready to rebel against Rome. 70 AD is 10 years away. Things are building. If you did anything that looked like you were against Israel or against Judaism, you were going to be ostracized and attacked. Paul was seen as doing precisely that by saying the things he was saying. So the thought was this plan would show people Paul is not what the Jews were saying, and some of the Jewish believers were believing about him. Paul would go through this seven-day Nazarite ritual, and he would pay the cost for four men doing the same who could not afford the offering, and then all would be well. But as we will see, there's a reason we say the best laid plans of mice and men. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, we make all these great plans, and yeah. Better to just live true to Christ. Let your life speak for itself. Know that he knows how you conduct your life. Know that your family knows how you conduct your life. Everybody outside of that, whatever. Because people are just bad. <laughs> and if you try to be liked by everyone, you're on a journey to nowhere. Because <laughs> you're never going to accomplish it. And if you're true to Christ, you will always have people who hate you and dislike you. And I'm not talking about wicked people. There's those. I'm talking about those who name the name of Christ who hate you because you live faithful to him. So in verse 26, it says, Then Paul took the men, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. So Paul's going to pay their offering. Um, the seven days are concluding. And does the plan go according to what the Jewish believers had put together for Paul? No, <laughs> it doesn't work. Out. It doesn't work out that way at all for Paul. Look at verses 27 through 29. Now, when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, remember them? They hated Paul. They hate him at, at Ephesus and the other places he was in Asia, tried to get him persecuted and mistreated him. They were jealous of him, despised him. So when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. They're playing on this nationalism. They're playing on the things they hold dear in order to turn the people against Paul. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. Okay? Understand here that they're accusing Paul of a capital offense. They're accusing Paul of a capital offense. There was, at the temple at that time, the court of the Gentiles. The Gentiles could only go into that outer court called the court of the Gentiles. They could not go into the inner temple area. Only a Jew could go into the inner temple area. If you went past this barrier, they had this like um, wall that was four and a half feet tall, Josephus told us. If a Gentile went past that, they could be instantly and would be instantly put to death for going past that wall. So they're accusing Paul of a capital offense here, that he took Trophimus into the inner court. Now, the Roman authorities were very conciliatory to the Jews. Remember, they didn't care what the Jews thought about a lot of things and all that type of stuff. But 
this was big to them because they knew how the Jews held it so dear that on this matter, this was the only matter of Jewish law that the Romans upheld the death penalty for. Any foreigner or Greek or anyone else who went past that wall, death awaited you. It was the only death penalty offense regarding Jewish law for the Romans because they knew how big of a deal that was and they'd have massive trouble if they didn't uphold that for the Jews. So there was this barrier between the court of the Gentiles and the temple courts, the inner courts, four and a half feet tall. No Gentile, according to Josephus, no Gentile was to go past the barrier. And here's what we discovered in 1871 and in 1935 through excavations that were taking place. We know the Jews had warnings all along this wall. And here's what the warning said. Listen to this. No foreigner is to enter within the balustrade, that's the the wall, and embarkment around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his death, which follows. (laughs) Unquote. (laughs) So they're accusing Paul of a capital offense, that he took Trophimus, a Greek, into this place. And these warnings were written in Greek, and they were written in Latin. So Nobody had an excuse. You went past that wall and you weren't Jew, you're a dead man. Now think about this, how this applies to American Christianity today. Here's how a good Jew would be thinking back then. He'd be thinking like this. How bizarre that we protect this one thing. No foreigner, no Gentile can come into the inner courts. And we have the Romans helping us with that. And, of course, the Jewish leadership would boast about that. The Romans are helping us make sure no foreigner, they will put to death any foreigner who goes past this wall. We will protect this. And yet, the Romans ruled every area of their life outside the little temple. So, yeah, we'll give you, you know, we'll make sure your little religious thing is safe over here. But we're going to rule you in every other area of life. And when I'm reading this, I'm thinking to myself, that's just like Christians today. As long as they have their little church, you know, and their little religious stuff going on, they don't care about everything else that's going on in the nation. They, they act indifferent towards it. And here's a perfect example of it. About a year ago, the Supreme Court came out with a ruling where they allowed this big cross to stay up because it was a huge fight that went on for like six years or something in the courts. And the Supreme Court said the cross can stay because there's nothing on it. It's just a cross. And all the Christians were like, thank you, SCOTUS. Thank you, Supreme Court. We get to keep our cross. And I'm thinking to myself, SCOTUS is going to let you keep your little cross, right? while they impugn everything that the cross represents. Everything that the rule of Christ represents, they impugn. They murder the pre... You can murder your own son or daughter through abortion. Sodomy is no crime. Adultery is no crime. Two men and two women can marry. So here's Scotus, who's like, yeah, you can keep your little cross but we're going to rule you in every other area of life. And the Christians are just good with it. You know, they're just good, good, good with it. 
This is the same type of thing you had back then. So a good Jew was probably very bothered by this, watching this hypocrisy back in his day. And we should be bothered by the hypocrisy that we see in our day. When we see God's law and word being impugned by men or by the governments of men, we should bristle. That should bother us. We should speak against it. We should act against it. That's what our duty is to do. But because of those who fill the pulpits these days, most don't care. They're happy with their little thing, and they're happy, you know, listening to the state telling them they can't meet even while a pretend plague is going on. And while the real harm is building regarding all the evil that is afoot here that they're trying to accomplish through their little pretend plague. So this was a deadly accusation the Jews were making against Paul. And notice it was the Jews from Ephesus that brought the accusation. Remember, they hated Paul. And look what happens. Verses 30 through 36. And all the city was disturbed. And the people ran together, seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. He was, take, he was in the inner area. He is a Jew. In the inner area of the temple. So they drag him out and they shut the doors. Goes on and says, now as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. He immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So the commander, he's responsible to keep peace in Jerusalem. And if he doesn't keep peace, it isn't going to go well with him. He's there for the interests of Rome. Make sure the status quo stays the status quo. They've bought off the Sanhedrin. Remember, we talked about this in the past. They get to act like they're the bigwigs to all the people, the religious and civil leaders to all the people. While they have this power and they have this wealth that they live in the midst of. Evil. And you see the same thing with the churchmen of our day. Silent dogs who who will not bark when evil is afoot. Men who want to be liked rather than have fealty to Christ. A true churchman understands that he's a priest of God. And as a priest of God, we represent God to man, and we represent man to God. If we just want to represent God to man, we can become harsh. If we just want to represent man to God, we can become compromising. We have a duty to do both. We should care about being faithful and true to Christ, our Lord, and we should care about our neighbor in need. And the evil that's going on here by the magistrates at the behest of elitist, rich, wealthy men, not just in our nation, but around the world, is disgusting. And what's more troubling and disgusting is the silence of the churchmen. There's a few speaking, very few. The vast majority are not speaking. So what we see here um, as we go on, I didn't finish reading it, is verse 34. And some among the multitude cried one thing and some another. So when he could not ascertain, the commander could not ascertain the truth, because of the tumult, he commanded him to be, Paul, to be taken into the barracks. When he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. Paul had been beaten and kicked so badly that he had to be carried up the steps by the soldiers. For the multitude of the people followed after, crying out, away with him, which was a term which meant kill him. Kill him. So what results from the lies of the Jews and the hegemony that's going on here is the third part of my sermon, a beating, takes place. Paul is beaten badly. 
Total pandemonium breaks out. Could you imagine how the churchmen of today would respond to this? How most Christians would respond to this? How could this be Christianity? Look at all this trouble going on here. When we go to the university, sometimes the students go crazy and start yelling and screaming and acting crazy. And the Christians come up to us, this isn't God. God wouldn't want this. This You, you should just go away. You know, we, we've tried to build our soft, fuzzy little ministry here on campus, and you're destroying it all. Yeah, it's so strong and worthy that we're destroying it in three hours, right? That's the type of Christianity we have today. I always refer to them to a painting of George Whitfield who spoke to the masses. And there's this famous painting where he's up on a barrel. There's a sea of people out in front of him. And in the sea of people, and if you read what happened, that is his preachings and John Wesley and other men, Peter Cartwright, who were out on this, in the field preaching the word of God, lots of troubles would happen. And in this painting, you see a guy out there banging on a drum. You see some guy dressed up like a joker doing some card game. You see a guy climb up in the tree behind him blowing a horn at him. These are all things that would regularly happen. Some other lady was up on a step later reading poetry. And yet in the midst of it all, in the midst of all that, God was working in the hearts of men. And that's what we've seen at the campuses and when we're out in the streets. Even when pandemonium breaks out, we see God working in the hearts of men. But for today's Christianity, oh, that can't be of God. They're whores. They're traitors. It's despicable. It should bother you to see that. You know what they do to young ministers who don't live according to their little religious idiocy? They browbeat them. They put wet blankets over them. They teach them bad theology to make sure they become like they are. These quiet dopes who sit in their buildings and live in la-la land. That's what most ministers are. Just watch their sermons, listen to their sermons. It's despicable. We should be faithful to Christ. And believe me, you don't have to be needlessly mean to people or obnoxious. You should not be. All you have to do is be true to Christ and you'll see what it does. People get bothered. And we've had those times at the campuses too where people put up their hands, everything's quiet and all that, right? It's all in God's hands. I remember one time seeing some preachers over in Dearborn. I'm from Detroit and they're at a big Muslim event and they're preaching and the Muslims get all mad and they're throwing rocks at the preachers. Well, then I saw another video and you know why they were throwing rocks at the preachers? Because the quote unquote preachers had the head of a pig, a real pig on a stick. They were needlessly provoking the Muslims. You don't have to do that. Why would you do that? Just be true to Christ. Point them to Jesus. Declare the truth of his word, who he is. You don't put a head of a pig on a stick. This is dumb. Just be faithful to Jesus. So Paul is beaten. And I have a question for you. Have you ever been beaten for your faithfulness to Christ? And again, you don't go out and try to do something so you can get beaten. If you haven't been beaten, I'm telling you, if you just be true to Christ and declare the truth of his law, word, and gospel to men, it'll end up happening to you at some point. And it could happen to you numerous times. The vast majority of American Christians have never been persecuted in any significant manner here in America. 
Somebody looks at them the wrong way and they think they've been persecuted. Oh, I really stepped out there this time. And look, he looked at me badly. I called me a name. You know? Why have the majority of American Christians never been significantly persecuted? Because of the soft, we want to be liked and never confront the evils, idols, or tyrants of our day form of Christianity. That's why. I have been beaten. Nothing like what happened to Paul here. I've been struck, maced, had harmful and hurtful objects thrown at me. I mean, crazy stuff. Somebody threw a license plate at me one time. Fortunately, I hit the sign, you know, and dug in there instead of my belly or something. You know? <laughs> People get crazy. I've been beaten by a police officer where I needed to go get medical, be taken to the hospital for medical attention. Just for being on the street, speaking up for my preborn neighbor. I've been spit on, egged, maligned in character, and lied about by both wicked men and Christian men. Jailed on many occasions, but never beaten like what is described here. Nothing even close to that. They were going to kill him. If it wasn't for the interposition of the commander, this Roman commander, Paul would have died there. You see God in the affairs of men, even here. You see here the interposition of a magistrate on behalf of a Christian man. I have my children read the stories of the faithful men and women and what they endured for their faithfulness to Christ. Missionaries, reformers, churchmen, Christians just standing true in their everyday life. These are the things I have my children read. I want them to be inspired to be faithful to Christ in the earth and read these types of writings and what these Christian men and women endured because of simply being faithful to Jesus. And I don't have time to go into a thousand stories. It goes on here and it says in verse 37, you know, Verse 37, then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I speak to you? See, just be a good man. Just be true. Just be right. May I speak to you? He replied, can you speak Greek? He was probably like, wow, this guy's speaking Greek to me. He's a Hebrew. Are you not the Egyptian? The Roman commander says to him, are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? That had happened three years earlier. And Felix, who was the governor of Palestine at that time, and his soldiers had run that guy out of Jerusalem three years earlier. He's thinking that's who Paul is. But Paul said, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city, and I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. So when... He had given him permission. Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, saying, and that'll be our next sermon. What he said in chapter 22 will be our next sermon while he's standing there on that staircase. It's the first of five great defenses that Paul makes during the upcoming chapters here regarding Christianity in the ministry God had called him to. Some people say, oh, it's hard to believe this story. Why would the crowd go silent? Because Paul raised his hand. 
and began to speak. Why would, why would they go silent and listen? I'll tell you, I had an experience like that. And here's, here's the answer to the question. Why would they go silent? Because God. <laughs> That's the answer. Because God. God wanted them to hear what he had to say. They went silent. I was in Washington, D.C. one time. It was during the inauguration of George Bush. I think it was his first time he won, you know, the younger one, uh, the son, George W. And um, we were there to speak up for the preborn and call out the hypocrisy of the Republicans, how they always put the preborn at the back of the bus and hide behind the Supreme Court as to why they can't protect the preborn. They love using the preborn as a, a tool, a political tool for their own advantage. It's disgusting, and Christians and pro-lifers have aided and embedded it for decades. It's a despicable thing to watch. So anyways, that's what we were there for, and I'm standing up on one of these cement curbs that they put up, and they had military guys out on the street. It was the first time I've been at other things before, inaugurals. I've never, never seen that type of thing before. And the police came in because I could see down at the bottom of the hill where I was with my sign. There was hardly anybody up there, but some people going by, so I was there supposed to rendezvous with some of uh, my children who were in different spots. And I could see down at the bottom of this hill a massive amount of these anarchists, thousands of them. And all of a sudden, I saw the police come in and spray tear gas into the crowd. If you know me, I love talking to anarchists because anarchists, to me, at least are way better than most Americans because at least they know something's messed up. It's just their solutions are all crazy and stupid, you know? It's, but at least they're better than most Americans who are just living their indifference and me, myself, and I, you know, in their little dopey, materialistic, ease-driven world. So I'm like, I'm watching this. It was like out of a movie. I'm looking down there and it's like, here's the tear gas. And when tear gas goes into a crowd of thousands of people, they move like flocks of birds. I mean, you move. I've been maced before ministering to the anarchists over in Pittsburgh, <laughs> you know, and then they fired in all this tear gas on it. I was just there to point him to Christ and talk to him, you know, about Jesus. And um, so, yeah, you move when tear gas comes, <laughs> comes floating in. Guess where they head? Up towards me, I see some of my children coming towards me. Crispin, Jeremiah were there. They were young at that time, maybe 14, 13 years old. They're coming across the street, and I see this huge crowd and there's no control of a crowd like that. And I was petrified that my sons were going to get plowed down and trampled underfoot. The crowd comes all the way up and stops where I am up on this thing, this cement curb barrier thing that they had put up. And all the crowd gets up there and they're all looking back. And I just began to preach. And you have this elevation and they all went quiet and they all stood there for about at least five minutes in dead silence. And I spoke about the preborn. I spoke about their hypocrisy because they're against injustice, but they all support the slaughter of the preborn. And I called them to repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ. And that was when they began to become unglued, <laughs> once you bring Jesus up. But they were totally silent. I was like stunned. So I just kept going because I couldn't believe they were quiet. And I was on fire. You know, when you can talk to people because you know you're just supposed to do it as a Christian. And then there's those times where you feel the fire of God on you. I was on fire. And some guy jumped up and tried to push me off. And you know me, I'm not a pacifist. I elbowed him in the belly and he fell off the thing. He was a bigger guy than me. You know me, I'm like the Pillsbury Doughboy, right? <laughs> he falls off the thing. The crowd goes, ooh, you know? 
And I just kept right on preaching. <laughs> you know, it's just like, it was phenomenal. So when Paul's going up this staircase and they see a people who are against him and he raises his hand, God made them be quiet. That's what I felt like. God made these people be quiet. You could feel his presence. You could see in their faces that what I was communicating was connecting with some of them very powerfully. And you knew it was God. So don't tell me, you know, that can't be the scholars of today. Or that probably wasn't true because why would they be quiet? You know, scholars who've never left the, their little ivory tower, you know, and uh, Christians. So anyway, um, we're done. So let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank and praise you for your goodness to us and that you have redeemed us. And Lord, we know that you saved us from our sin and from your just wrath. But Lord, you didn't just save us from something. You also saved us for something, namely to be conformed into the image of your son in our lives and to do those things which are dear to your heart in the earth to be faithful and true to you in the earth, declaring your holy law, your word, and your great salvation to men. May we be faithful and true in doing that. And we ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, and thank you for joining us here at Mercy Seat. Um, love you all. God bless you.